This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. One of the most haunting scenes in all opera features the offstage death of a group of nuns forced to the guillotine for their refusal to bow to tyranny. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we discuss the opera that features this harrowing scene, Francis Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The final few weeks of the Metropolitan Opera's 2018-19 season features Poulenc's soul-searing opera based on a true story of a group of Carmelite nuns who refused to renounce their faith during the Reign of Terror and faced the ultimate price. I'm Naomi Baratera. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Desiree Mays takes a closer look at this 20th century French masterpiece. I am thine. I was born for thee. What is thy will with me? This was the question asked of God by St. Teresa of Avila, the founder of the Order of Carmelite Nuns. This truly beautiful opera by Francis Poulenc tells the true story of 16 Carmelite nuns who went voluntarily to the guillotine during the French Revolution. From the opera, this is the sound of these holy women singing the Ave Maria.
The recording I'm using today is from the Opera of Lyon, with Kent Nagano conducting. Catherine Duboche plays Blanche de la Force. Rita Gore sings Madame de Croissy. Rachel Yakar's Madame Lidoine. And Constance is sung by Brigitte Fournier. This is what happened. The tumbrils grind their way through the filthy streets of Paris. Sixteen women stand in the swaying carts, some grasping the sides for support, other with their hands clasped in prayer at their hearts, their eyes lifted towards heaven, their faces calm. Wearing ragged brown dresses with white cloths wound round their shoulders in some semblance of a cloak, they sing as the death cart makes its way to the Place du Trône. These are the Carmelite nuns from Compiègne on their way to execution. The date is July 17, 1794. Led in holy song by the prioress, the crowd quietens and grows completely still as the dreadful tumbrel reaches the square. Even the drums which roll to defiantly announce Madame la Guillotine's next victim are silent. Unaided, the nuns step down from the cart one at a time. The youngest kneels at the feet of her mother, the prioress, asking a blessing and for permission to die. Then she rises and walks to the guillotine to the sound of her sister singing the Salve Regina. One by one the women go to their deaths, singing hymns. Their diminishing song is punctuated by the dreadful thud of the falling blade, until there is only one Carmelite left. The prioress ascends the place of execution and lays her head on the block. Then she, too, is silenced. The crowd slowly disperses, fading into the darkest corners of the bloody square. Ten days later, the reign of terror and the executions of 1,300 people by the guillotine end. This is a true story. One nun alone escaped the slaughter, Mother Marie of the Incarnation, she who had been most eager that the small community make the ultimate sacrifice of offering their lives to God as victims, to obtain peace for the Church and for France. By a strange set of circumstances, she alone was separated from her sisters when they were arrested and did not die with them. Mother Marie survived to tell their story in her memoirs, Relation, which were published posthumously in 1836. To give you a sense of the horror that existed at the time, and to provide a framework for the opera, let me tell you first of the real nuns who sacrificed their lives on that fateful July day. Women in France at this time were only accepted into the Carmelite order if they had a calling to be a nun, for the life of a religious was rigorous. The women generally came from aristocratic families, women determined to put the ways of the world aside and devote their lives to God. One great example is Louise, a princess of France, daughter of Louis XV. Her mother was the Polish queen, but Louis spent all of his time with Madame la Pompadour, flaunting his marriage and his daughters. Louise decided to join the convent to pray for the soul of her flamboyant father. She came to the convent with a large dowry. This was the way the convent survived, since they had no income from anywhere else. Marie Antoinette was her niece by marriage to the Dauphin. Madame Louise brought many nuns into the order, some of whom would die on the guillotine. One woman she introduced was Madame Lidoine, who was destined to be prioress of the Carmelites at the time of the executions. 
Madame Lidoyne was the daughter of an employee at the Paris Observatory, and as such did not have a dowry. She met La Madame Louise, who, convinced of the girl's piety, appealed to Marie Antoinette to provide a dowry for the girl, which the Queen willingly did. Another woman, Madame Rose Chrétien, came to Carmel when the husband she adored died, and Madame Louise made it possible for her to go to Compiègne, and ultimately to her death with her Carmelite sisters. Mother Marie, who survived to tell the story, was another nun Madame Louise brought to Carmel. Madame Marie was the illegitimate daughter of a prince of the royal blood, and being illegitimate did not have a large dowry. Louise herself died before the horror descended on her sisters. Madame Croissy, the old prioress who dies in the opera, was in fact the noble daughter of a minister of Louis the Fourteenth. In real life she did not die before the executions as in the opera, but when her term as prioress ended she became the mistress of novices and went with them to the guillotine. Sister Constance, a novice for six years at Compiègne, was banned by the Revolutionary Council from taking her vows, but at the very end, defying the edict, she took her vows moments before going to her death. So in the opera, four of the sixteen nuns were based on real women, Madame de Croissy, Madame Lidorine, Marie, and Sister Constance, the young novice. At the time of the Revolution, the Carmelites in their cloistered world had withdrawn from society and were perceived by the revolutionaries as isolated and out of touch with world affairs, so they were left alone in the beginning. The Catholic Church was singled out as one of the major reasons for the suffering of the French people prior to the Revolution. Perceived as rich and royalist, the Catholic Church had owned 10% of the land. The clergy, protected by the crown, held on to the old ways, and when the Ancien Régime fell, the Church fell also. Revolutionary councils disbanded and often desecrated churches, monasteries, and convents. Church lands were confiscated and the clergy forbidden to practice their faith or wear religious clothes. In 1792, 30 to 40,000 priests and nuns were expelled and driven into exile. The revolutionaries, declaring that the clergy were superstitious parasites living off the fat of the land and serving no good purpose, set about de-Christianizing France, while the vast wealth which was confiscated from the church funded the revolution. Churches were desecrated and turned into temples of reason, and the Christian calendar was suppressed. All of the 144 Carmelite houses in France were either confiscated or destroyed by the end of the revolution. The few surviving groups outside France and individuals like Mother Marie barely kept the order alive. Rebuilding started slowly and painfully in the 19th century. Nearly a hundred years after Madame Marie wrote her memoirs of the last days of the Carmelites, a German writer, Gertrude von Lefort, became aware of Mother Marie's papers and in 1931 based her book, Die am translated as The Song at the Scaffold, based it on this account. Lefort's book is in the form of a correspondence written shortly after the revolution between two aristocrats, one in Paris and a friend who had escaped to London. Lefort introduces the fictional character of Blanche de la Force to the historical story. 
The plot in Lefort's book is driven by Blanche's reasons for entering the convent, her suffering within its walls, and her struggle with issues of faith, grace, and prayer as she attempts to deal with her immobilizing fear. Lefort herself identified with Blanche's struggle and links the terror of 1794 to the rise of Hitler in Germany. Blanche, whose name signifies purity and fear, is juxtaposed with the de la force, suggesting strength out of weakness. The scene in which Blanche chooses her new name, Sister Blanche of the Agony of Christ, is a key scene in the opera. Then, in 1948, the highly respected French novelist and author of A Diary of a Country Priest and writer of Catholic literature, Georges Bernanot, took up the tale and wrote a screenplay, Dialogue des Carmelites, based on Lefort's story. Two more fictional characters were added, Blanche's father, the Marquis de la Force, and her brother, the Chevalier. Bernanot wrote in a race against time, for he too was facing illness and death as he wrote the play that was to be his spiritual testament. Bernanot, like Blanche, was a victim of fear all his life. The agonie in Blanche's name, l'agonie du Christ, refers specifically in French to the fear of death. Both he and Blanche identified closely with the suffering of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. While Gertrude Lefort had set the story against a larger historical context, Bernanot chose to explore the theme of the Christian's confrontation with death and the inner conflict of Blanche as the focus of his play. Shortly after finishing the play, Bernanot was assisted on his own deathbed by the very same Carmelite nuns from Compiègne whose story he had told. He did not live to see his play published or know of its great success in theatres across Europe. The French composer Francis Poulenc heard the story of the Carmelites while visiting Milan some years later. The director of the great music publishing house Ricordi suggested he might like to set the Bernanot play as an opera. Drawn to the spiritual values in Bernanot's text, Poulenc was immediately interested. He was well established in his career by the 1950s as one of six young composers known as Les Six in Paris. He had contributed to changing the direction of music away from Romanticism toward a style of simplicity and naturalness. Debussy, Ravel and Stravinsky were his major sources of inspiration. His contemporaries and friends were Mio, Onega, Chabrier, Satie and Jean Cocteau. Poulain composed Dialogue of the Carmelites between 1953 and 1956. The 1957 premiere at La Scala Milan was a major success. Poulain dedicated the opera to Debussy, Verdi, Monteverdi and Mussorgsky, who served as my models, he said. From Monteverdi comes echoes of 17th century music with its stately moods and polyphonic textures. Poulenc wanted every word to be understood, so he thought constantly, he said, of Monteverdi, whose music always achieved a maximum of lyricism while maintaining the greatest restraint of instrumental forces. Debussy is present in the quiet mood, the conversational style and the inner psychological stress of the characters. 
From Uzorsky come reminiscences of Boris Godunov in the harmonic language, monotonal interludes, and in the Russian style clashing chords. From Verdi comes lyricism and an emphasis on solo voices. The dialogue of the title is often between these great composers and Poulenc himself as he weaves together the score. Poulenc's method of telling the tale of the Carmelites in music is one of understatement and quiet simplicity expressed in sensitive lyricism. The soaring melodies in the score have an elegance that could only be French. The scoring of the Latin hymns for the nuns, choral high points of the opera, establishes the religiosity and sensuousness of the work. Let's hear one of the lovely interludes from the opera. In setting the tone for Dialogue of the Carmelites, Poulenc took his cue from St. Teresa of Avila, the founder of the order, who said, May God deliver me from gloomy saints. Poulenc's view of life is predominantly Catholic. My faith is that of a country priest, he said of himself. The simple, gentle certainty of such a faith permeates this work. For Poulenc, quote, Blanche is the real subject. She is troubled and frightened. At the convent there is another young novice, Constance, of whom Poulenc said, Constance loves Blanche innocently and instinctively. Grace operates through her, and the true focus of the play is the transferal of grace and the communion of saints. Opera News' Brian Keller wrote of grace, That quieting of the soul that may make us receptive to life-altering change within, and one doesn't have to be Catholic to experience that. Dialogue of the Carmelite was composed in three acts and twelve scenes. The scenes are separated by exquisite musical interludes that serve as a seamless way of moving the action from place to place and as a way of underlining the mood of the moment. The place is Compiègne, just north of Paris, on the eve of revolution in 1789. The curtain rises on the home of the Marquis de la Force, the Marquis and his son are discussing Blanche. Both love her and are worried because her carriage was caught in a street disturbance and her safety was threatened. They discuss the young woman's debilitating fear, and the Marquis recalls how his wife had been caught in a similar street disturbance when the fire broke out during a great firework display celebrating the marriage of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. The crowd had panicked, threatening to overrun the Marquise's coach, the coachman had been able to get home, but later that night the Marquesa died while giving birth to Blanche. 
Startled by a shadow on the wall near the beginning of the opera, her brother says of Blanche, terror destroys her soul. The frightened young woman joins her father and brother and assures them she is quite safe. But later she comes to ask her father's permission to join the Carmelite order. Pity my grief, and let me hope that I shall find some cure for the dreadful torment that makes my life so unhappy, she begs. Her father sadly agrees to let her go. Here is the Marquis. Si l'épreuve est au-dessus de vos forces ou non. At the first meeting with the prioress, Madame Croissy, she warns Blanche that life as a Carmelite is difficult. God tests not your strength, but your weakness. The prioress speaks to her of detachment. Those entering the order must be detached from all earthly things, not least of which is detachment from self. When Blanche tells the prioress that she seeks a life that is heroic, the response is harsh. We are only a house of prayer. Prayer provides the only reason for our existence. Every prayer is the prayer of all mankind. The purpose of the monastic life is not to abandon the world, but to pray for it, Blanche is told. Sensing Blanche's self-doubt and anxiety, the prioress asks if she has chosen a name. When Blanche responds, Sister Blanche of the Agony of Christ, the prioress is taken aback for this was the name she too had chosen as a novice. The destinies of the two women are linked from this moment. The Carmelites believe their chosen name gives them special access to the mystery expressed by the name. The prioress understands the demands that will be made of Blanche, for she had too had been told as a novice, who enters Gethsemane never leaves it. Do you have the courage to remain until the end a prisoner of the most holy agony? But Blanche is not deterred and is accepted into the convent. The other nuns, particularly Mother Marie, are confused about Blanche's calling. If Blanche's fear is so overwhelming and pervasive, surely she is not suited to the rigorous Carmelite way of life. But if Blanche's fear is of a religious nature, she could not be expelled. The name Blanche of the Agony of Christ implied identification with the mortal fear of Christ in the garden before his death. If this was at the heart of Blanche's fear, her sisters must both honour and protect her. Blanche, unable to divine the cause of her fear, alternately struggles against it and then seems to give up the fight. Her faith in the safety of the convent, however, 
trembles as the revolution builds. Once she is part of the convent community, she meets Constance, a young woman filled with joy and an unerring faith in God and mankind. Constance also has a premonition that she and Blanche will die on the same day, and they will both die young. The two novices are present at the anguished death of the prioress, a woman who prepared for death every day in prayer, but who was not, at the end, able to meet it with equanimity. The two young women, one real and one fictional, become two faces of one woman, the strong and the weak, the fearful and the confident, one with natural faith, one who doubts. Here they talk of death. Madame de Croissy summons Blanche to her side when she lies dying. But death does not come easily for Croissy, who had never feared death until this moment, and now she loses faith and dies with the terrified Blanche sobbing by her side. The young nuns talk later of Croissy's fearful death, and Constance suggests that maybe the prioress's death was a mistake. Who would have thought she would have had such trouble dying? One would say that in giving her this kind of death, our good Lord made an error, as in a cloakroom where they give you one cloak for another. Her death belonged to someone else. Who knows? Following the death of Madame de Croissy, Madame Lidoyne is chosen as the new prioress. She wonders whether she is fit to be a prioress, yet this deeply spiritual woman with a profound trust in God was the one whose courage led her small community to the guillotine on that fateful day. At her election, one of the most beautiful passages in the opera, the nuns kneel and sing the Ave Maria. Hail Mary, full of grace, let it be done unto me according to thy word. The Carmelite's way of life is one of total, unquestioning acceptance of the will of God and of dedication to prayer and the service of others. Their life is austere, their days and nights spent in silence. To this day, their primary purpose is to pray for us, for all mankind. Sometime later, a knock at the convent door reveals the chevalier, Blanche's brother. It's four years since Blanche joined the convent. He has come to tell her he must flee France, but he hopes she will return home to take care of their father. Blanche, distant and frightened, refuses. He asks if fear holds her back, and she replies she only feels safe in the convent. 
brother and sister bid one another a final tender farewell. The chaplain says a final mass for the Carmelites and then tells them he must flee, but the mob arrives at the door Marie confronts them. The revolutionary commissioners order the Carmelites out of the convent and tells them they must dress in civilian clothes. The terrified Blanche cowers in a corner. The nuns give her the little statue of the little king, a miraculous statue called the Holy Child of Prague that originally came from Spain, the statue that their founder, Teresa of Avila, had venerated. Madame Marie now hands the statue to Blanche, who, trembling, drops it. It chatters on the ground and the head comes off, symbolizing the end of the monarchy and the death of the nuns. The inexorable march of revolution now makes itself felt within the convent walls. The nun's chaplain is expelled and forbidden by the revolutionary council to dress as a priest or perform any of the functions of a priest. The nuns sing the Ave Verum as the chaplain prepares to leave. This hymn of the Holy Sacrament becomes the nun's hymn of farewell to their priest, to the sacrament, and to their identification with Christ himself. This is the Ave Virum. Later, when the chaplain's life is threatened, the nuns protect him, and they are threatened in turn by the revolutionaries for doing so. Mother Marie, a forceful and determined woman into whose care Blanche has been entrusted by the dying prioress, proposes that the nuns take a vow of martyrdom, so that our beloved order may be preserved and saved from harm, she says. One by one the nuns take the vow. Blanche makes her vow panics, then flees the convent in terror. In 1793, the nuns were ordered out of the convent. They had to dress as lay people and were forbidden to communicate with one another. These women, many of whom were in their seventies and had spent most of their lives within the convent walls, were now cast out. They had no money for food and depended on the charity of lay people for food and simple clothes. They lived in groups in the village. In the spirit of their vow, however, they continued to meet and pray, and for this they were arrested. Mother Marie had left the convent briefly to settle some affairs of her deceased father and to take the prioress's very elderly mother out of Paris. Thus she, who had proposed the vow of consecration, was not present when her sisters were arrested. In the opera she goes to seek Blanche and finds her in pitiable circumstances as a badly abused servant in her own father's house. 
The Marquis had gone to his death a few days before. Blanche is paralysed with fear. Blanche tells her masochistically that because she is so unworthy it is only right she should be a miserable, mistreated servant in her father's house. Everything she depended on has gone, her father dead and the convent disbanded. Blanche is too terrified to accompany Mother Marie, who leaves alone. But when she gets to the gates of the city they are closed, preventing her from rejoining her sisters. Madame Marie's account tells of an almost miraculous event that happened before the Carmelites were taken to Paris. The prioress asked that the women be allowed to wash the rags they wore before leaving, and the commissioner agreed. It turned out that in order to wash the only clothes they had, it was necessary to change into their brown habits with the white veil, the dress of Carmel, while their civilian clothes were drying. Then, in the rush to move out, there was no time to change back, so the nuns left Compiègne wearing the forbidden habits. When they reached Paris, after travelling many hours in a straw-strewn cart, one old nun, unable to stand, was thrown off the cart by a soldier. As she lay on the ground, she thanked the soldier for not killing her, so that she could die the next day with her sisters. In the conciergerie, the prison of Paris, the nuns pray together. There was a farcical trial in which they were condemned for, quote, gathering illegally, for spreading fanatical writings opposed to freedom, as a body of rebels, openly seditious, who desire to see the people of France once more in the chains of tyrants, to see liberty drowned in torrents of blood which their treacherous plots have brought about in the name of God. The prioress reminds her daughters of their purpose in these terrible times. When there are not priests enough, there are plenty of martyrs, and the balance of grace is thereby restored. Twenty-six other men and women were condemned to die with the nuns the next day. Here is the prioress sung by Rita Gore. The Carmelites were herded onto the dreadful death carts for the two-mile journey through the streets of Paris. They sang hymns throughout the terrible ride. When they reached the place of execution, their chaplain, dressed as a revolutionary, secretly blessed each one as she passed. 
When they arrived, each nun knelt by the prioress, asking permission to die, and kissed the tiny statuette she held of the virgin and child before mounting the bloodied steps, singing, their faces transfigured. In the opera, the prioress leads her daughters. All the nuns sang the praises of the Lord, the sound getting smaller and smaller as each head fell. At last, only Constance remains. Her voice is very faint as she approaches the scaffold when her song is picked up by another small voice in the crowd. Constance turns and sees Blanche. Her fear gone, she is unaware of the crowd around her as she walks out of their midst. Filled with inner peace and calm, she chooses death, the greater freedom. Blanche follows Constance to the scaffold as the opera ends. And here is the final Salve Regina. The Carmelite Order, founded by monks on Mount Carmel in Israel, was reformed by St. Teresa of Avila in the 16th century. The play and the opera, Dialogue of the Carmelites, are studies in the religious psychology underlying the Carmelites' austere lifestyle. What enabled these few reclusive nuns to make this supreme sacrifice that was one of the contributing factors to the end of the Reign of Terror? Their voluntary deaths shamed the mob by revealing the barbarity, the total loss of reason that prevailed. That fateful day the mob, accustomed to drum rolls and shouting derisively at those condemned, felt silent as the nuns passed. The revolution with its wholesale loss of faith and total upheaval of society had no time for God. The Carmelites cloistered themselves away so that through their prayers and sacrifice grace could be obtained for mankind. The dying prioress, a woman whose loss of faith and painful death reflected what was happening in France on one hand, and on the other, her taking on Blanche's agony and fear, 
may be seen in that mystical transference of taking on Blanche's fear as an act of atonement, freeing Blanche to die fearlessly when her time came. On her deathbed, Madame de Croissy tells Blanche she would give her life to avert the danger that threatens Blanche. This gesture is reinforced when, later, Constance tells Blanche that the prioress's death belonged to another, to someone else, when it is his turn to die who will be surprised to find it is so easy. We do not die for ourselves alone, but for each other, or sometimes even instead of each other. Blanche's story tells of the journey of a soul suffering from a deep inborn fear of life and death to the transcendence of fear when she becomes a calm, exultant martyr. She joins the convent as a refugee from the outside world. Blanche tells her family of her sense of dying each night, only to be born again in the morning. Every night of one's life is like the night of the agony of Christ, she sings, echoing the Salve Regina, the song of Compline, the night prayer which contemplatives sing at the end of each day as they gather together in the dying light to recite, Hail, Mother of Mercy, our sweetness, our life, and our hope. To you do we cry, to we do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Each evening at the end of the prayer the lights go out, and the nuns retire to their cells in the silencium magnum, the great silence which foreshadows death, a quiet, solitary time in which death is contemplated in the final moments before sleep. The friendship between Blanche and Constance, the two novices, demonstrates both the interdependence of the nuns and the working of grace within the convent. Author Patrick Francis, in his book The Great Design, describes grace as, quote, a feeling of oneness with life, a harmonious condition in which all beings have their own place, where they can unfold without interference, an active condition that runs with the creativity of life. In the tug and flow of this life, Constance, the woman who really lived, is filled with confidence and a childlike faith, while Blanche, her fictional sister, is anxious, neurotic, and frightened. The two novices are linked both musically and dramatically, the insightful Constance assumes that Blanche would get willingly give her life in exchange for the life of the prioress, but this touches the very core of Blanche's fear, and she berates Constance, who reminds her that the name of chance is perhaps only the logic of God. Finding little consolation in the safety of the convent or in Constance's all-encompassing faith, Blanche summons her last shreds of courage to take the vow of martyrdom with her sister, but then flees and refuses to return when Marie comes to her later. When she sinks even lower, she even denies knowing of Compiègne, and when she hears that her sisters have been arrested, she is terrified. All these women who lived a cloistered life and observed a rule of silence are dragged before the mob, and we hear only their song, the Salve Regina. Cloaked in grace, the small community faces death together as they ascend the scaffold. At last, only Constance is left. As she moves forward, she seeks the one who was lost, her other self, and her face becomes suffused with joy as she sees Blanche emerge from the seething mass. 
Blanche had found the inner peace she so earnestly sought all her life. The two young women exchange one radiant glance, and Constance continues up the steps, while Blanche, her face freed from every vestige of fear, follows her, singing, not the Save Regina of her sisters, but the Veni Creator, the hymn of the descent of the Holy Spirit, a hymn of strength and fortitude. Come with thy grace and heavenly aid to fill the hearts that thou hast made. Glory to God and the risen Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, evermore. The dialogue between the small band of nuns and the mob was conducted in silence. Crazed in their zeal, the blood-lusty Parisians who seethed and ran in the bloodied streets had forgotten reason and cause in their fear of the terrible times in which they lived. On this day the mob was silent, put to shame by the extraordinary inner strength of the innocent women they had convicted. The dialogue of the cloistered nuns was heard far beyond the square in Paris where they were so brutally punished. Their song of faith is still heard two hundred years later as we ponder their sacrifice and wonder at their courage. Their dialogue was and is about community, communication and communion. Dialogue of the Carmelites demonstrates that loyalty, service and brother-sisterhood are virtues that always have and always will transcend times of cruelty and violence. Mother Marie, Gertrude von Lefort, Georges Bernanot and Francis Poulenc all contributed the grace of their creativity to the story, ensuring that the sacrifice of those 16 nuns in July 1794 would never be forgotten. And now, lest I leave you silly feeling saddened, let me tell you of my experience with the dialogue of the Carmelites when it was seen in Santa Fe. I discovered there was a Carmelite convent in Santa Fe. Though most of the sisters had taken a vow of silence, the Mother Superior, Mother Rose, could speak occasionally to outsiders. I arranged to meet with her on a cold, wintry day. At the convent, I was shown into a sparsely furnished reception room with bare floors, on the wall was a grill behind which the curtain was drawn, and I assumed that while I could speak to Mother Rose, I would not be able to see her, when suddenly the curtain swished back, and there she was, in the simple brown habit of the Carmelites that I had seen in pictures, her feet bare in sandals on that snowy day. She was delightful, and only too happy to talk of her sisters who had died in the Revolution. She left me at one point to fetch the words of the actual hymns the nuns sang on their way to the scaffold. Thrilled with the visit, I returned to the opera to tell the director, Francesco Zambella, all about it. While watching the rehearsal that day, it struck me that our lively young apprentice singers had no idea of how to walk like nuns, far too much bounce. So I called Mother Rose and asked if I could bring the young singers to Mass to hear and at least see the nuns, and she agreed. That Sunday, Francesca Zambello, a number of young singers, and I heard the nuns sing a wavering mass from behind a curtain. We could hear, but not see them. All of them were elderly, so their voices were soft and gentle. After the mass, we did see them, and the singers noted how they walked quietly and smoothly, and all remarked on the serene calm in every one of the scrubbed, clean faces of the nuns, their eyes and their whole demeanour at peace. 
The singers were excited to have met the nuns, and later I heard the elderly nuns were thrilled to have been in the company of the young singers who would portray their long-dead sisters. As we left, Mother Road assured all of us that we would all be in their prayers. That morning at the Carmelite convent with the young singers was a very special day for all of us. The famed Met production of this opera hails from 1977 and was the inspiration of director John Dexter. The cast for this season at the Met includes Isabel Leonard singing Blanche de la Force, Carita Matala singing Madame Croissy, and Erin Morley singing Constance. Thank you for listening. This is Desiree Mays. Many thanks to Desiree Mays for sharing such wonderful insights into Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites. John Dexter's classic production of Dialogues of the Carmelites is currently on stage at the Met and can be seen broadcast live in HD in cinemas worldwide on May 11, 2019. For more information, visit metopera.org slash incinemas. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.